I'd invite you this morning to join me in the Psalms, the 115th Psalm. Psalm 115. While we will focus primarily on the first three verses, I want to read the entire psalm, all 18. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. The Lord has remembered us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both small and the great. May the Lord give you increase, you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth. The heavens are the Lord's heavens but the earth he's given to the children of man the dead do not praise the lord nor do any who go down into silence but we will bless the lord from this time forth and forevermore praise the lord let's pray father now by your spirit attend this your word grant us wisdom Grant us insight, grant us repentance, and greater faith, for we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. C.S. Lewis observed, in Hamlet, a branch breaks and Ophelia is drowned. Did she die because the branch broke? Or because Shakespeare wanted her to die at that point in the play? Either both, whichever you prefer. The alternative suggested by the question is not a real alternative at all. Once you've grasped that Shakespeare is making the whole play. So today we address this. Who's in charge here? What do we mean when we talk about the sovereignty of God? This is the third psalm in what's called the Egyptian Hallel. Psalms sung at festivals, but especially at Passover by Jewish families. It's very likely this psalm was sung by Jesus and the disciples on the night of his betrayal. It's a psalm anchored in the sovereignty of God and God's zeal for his own glory. 
The description here of pagan idols is really and truly a description of all false gods. And my friend, while the idols are no longer quite so obvious, they are nonetheless real. And the consequences of worshiping them are certainly the same. When we speak to the sovereignty of God, we mean the Godhead of God. That is, the Lord is King. Now, for many, this is a foreign concept. We're very good at exalting man and his abilities and his accomplishments. We're dogged in our assertions of the freedom of man. But we get very uncomfortable when we're confronted with the God of the Bible. We do not lift our eyes high enough, often enough. Spurgeon said, manhood is not a mirror broad enough to reflect the majesty of the eternal. I know we've been doing doctrinal preaching of late, and for some that's a bit of a challenge, and that's okay. It's a bit of a challenge for those of us preparing it as well. Packer put it this way in his little book, A Quest for Godliness. Doctrinal preaching certainly bores the hypocrites. But it's only doctrinal preaching that will save Christ's sheep. The preacher's job is to proclaim the faith, not to provide entertainment for unbelievers. In other words, to feed the sheep rather than amuse the goats. Boy, he was edgy for an Anglican, wasn't he? When I look back over my own Christian life, I'm struck by something. My own soul has been the most fed outside of the Scripture itself by what some would call heavier material. Knowing God. The joy of fearing God. The knowledge of the holy. Desiring God. Make no apology for that. We must know God and love God and pursue Him so we ought to learn about Him. My recollection of the seriousness of the glory of God first really coming into my thinking goes all the way back to the year of our Lord, 1979. Now for some of you, you think that is ancient history. It likely is. Sitting in a house in Bolivar, Missouri, student S, that time SWBC, now SBU, with a group of other young couples and a pastor named Jim Gables who drove down from First Baptist Osceola once a week for about six weeks to talk to us about the sovereignty of God and what it means. And he launched everything from this 115th Psalm. Now, let me say quickly, this isn't Jim's sermon. I will acknowledge that the sermon is 40 years old at least the core of it. But the sermon has grown as I have grown. I'm reminded of the time somebody asked Donald Barnhouse how long he had prepared a particular sermon that had been so powerful to them, and he looked them in the eye and said, 30 minutes and 30 years. I don't have as much on the ball as Dr. Barnhouse did, so it took me longer than that. His starting text, this 115th Psalm, fastened in my mind. 
And this doctrinal understanding, if you will, this pruning, had some unintended consequences. Now, on a negative side, I watched as several of my acquaintances and friends decided that they were going to become evangelists for the sovereignty of God, which meant they delighted to trap people in debate and conversation who had very little understanding. And I would watch as they would reduce many times other students to tears in their zeal. Thankfully, I benefited from other ministers, other followers. Though he never knew it, well, I can't say that. I finally got to tell John how much I appreciated what he had done. John Riesinger came to speak at first Osceola, and I went up there as often as I could because I was hearing somebody, first of all, explain the text in ways that I'd never heard. Profound, helpful, good for the soul. And what I saw in him was this. You don't have to be a jerk to believe in the sovereignty of God. You don't have to beat people up with the doctrine. You can argue it vigorously. You can affirm it yourself. But if you actually believe in the sovereignty of God, you trust that God will show people that. You can teach it. But why turn it into a matter of fellowship? The other thing that stood out to me, and I, I know this is testimony at this point, but you'll forgive me for a little personal recollection here. I know you get nervous. Let me just say, I've told you this, I'll tell you again. Uh, there are key individuals who know that if I turn into the reminiscer, or I wander in the preaching, it's time for Doug to retire. Okay? This is testimony. I actually plan to do this. Whew. I look back to that time period, around 79 and 80, and realized at that moment, at least best I could tell, we were a handful of people that believed these things especially in light of the broader Southern Baptist Convention. And then, right in the midst of that, I received in the mail a free book. Our budget was tight. Books, even then, seemed expensive, but, you know, when your income is 75, 80 bucks a week, a $3 book is pricey. It was entitled, The Abstract, An Abstract of Systematic Theology by a fellow named James P. Boyce, B-O-Y-C-E. It was paperback. Sent to me by a couple of fellows, Ernie Riesinger, John's brother, and a young man about my own age, more or less, named Tom Askell. And suddenly I realized we're not alone. And 
And what I have been privileged to witness by the grace of God was a growth and an understanding of this glorious doctrinal content born out of not just the Reformation, but out of Augustine and the back to the New Testament. Dr. Richard Belcher began writing along in that era, and his book's so helpful. But in all of it, what it came out to be was this. Maybe there is a place for this guy in Southern Baptist life. And whether you think in terms of A.W. Pink's sovereignty of God or R.C. Sproul, all of them helped me grow into this. Now this again is theological preaching. It's nothing different than what we've been doing as we've considered the matter of the existence and attributes of God. And what I'll say to you, my friend, is I think most of the time we, without the grace of God, will gladly deny sovereignty in order to keep our autonomy. We are so zealous for our own autonomy. We are so zealous for our own control that the thought of a God who is actually over us bothers us. And we push back on that. You see, the reality of God's sovereignty confounds unbelievers and comforts believers. Now, sometimes comforting the believer has to start with a little confounding too. Right? Our doctrines sometimes are wrong. Not well refined, not well thought out. And the Lord has to do some stuff to get our attention, part of the pruning process. So I would have us consider this matter of God's sovereignty, the Godhood of God, if you will, in four aspects. First, God's sovereignty over Satan. Now I begin here because I think we tend to make one of two errors regarding the enemy. We either deny the existence of this enemy, either intellectually or practically, or we so affirm his existence that it becomes an unhealthy overfocus on him. I know I have brethren who the car doesn't start, it's a demon. You think, I've heard that. Uh, something goes wrong, obviously something demonic. And uh, our views of salvation get so screwed. I've had people say, well, don't you think a Christian could be possessed by a demon? And I'm going, what? The Holy Spirit and a demon ain't going to dwell in the same place, children. And the Spirit comes to take up residence solely in us. And of course, I, well, how about oppression of a demon? I say, well, explain to me the distinction between oppression and possession, and maybe we have a conversation that ought to take place. Now, why do I start here? Because I think if we don't start here, we cause all sorts of problems for ourselves down the road. And I'll start here, and we're going to refer to this in a couple of instances today. The book of Job, the first chapter. 
Now, let me point something out, and I think this is really important to see. Don't ever lose verse 1, chapter 1 of Job, or you're going to go wrong on your interpretation of what happens in Job. Job 1.1, there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. Now, I say that because I've heard some people say, well, actually, Job was secretly sinful. And I went, okay, you just fell into his friends who showed up trying to get him to admit that he had messed up and sinned. If the Word of God says a man is upright, righteous, and blameless, God have mercy on you for saying he's anything else. And we take that, this little information here about Job and his family and his fidelity to the Lord, and we suddenly take him into heaven. There was a day, verse 6, when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said unto Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there's none like him on earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? You see a theme here, children. The Lord's assessment in speaking to Satan, right? Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him in his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has. He'll curse you to your face. Footnote. Just because you read that Satan said the Lord had put a hedge around Job is not a biblical warrant for the old, I'm going to pray a hedge of protection around you. I've heard that years and years, and I still have no biblical basis for that. Now, you can disagree with me, and that's okay. You can be wrong, and I can live with that. Notice verse 12. Behold, all that he has is in your hand, only against him do not stretch out your hand. Now, I want you to pay attention to that. Who brings up Job? God. Who limits what Satan can do? God. And then you read about the Sabaeans and about the fire of God falling from heaven and the Chaldeans and the loss of his sons and his daughters. And you come to the end of chapter, uh, chapter 1, verse 20. Then Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, fell on, his, on the ground. And what did he do? What does it say at the end of verse 20? Worship. But let me just put this out here for you, folks. If our first instinct in suffering isn't to fall down and worship, something's wrong. And he said, 
Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. But do you note, Satan can do no more than the Lord allowed him to do. The same is repeated in chapter 2, and I'm not going to camp here long, lest this turn into a four-sermon series rather than a single message. In the second chapter, very same thing, except then the, the, the enemy, Satan, says, skin for skin, let me get a hold of him. He'll, take, he'll, he'll curse you to your face. And again, the Lord sets the limit. Behold, he's in your hand, only spare his life. And the next thing he has is a horrible breaking out of these awful boils, and he cannot get any relief, and he cannot get any comfort. And his wife says in verse 9, do you still hold fast your integrity, curse God, and die? And here's his response. You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil or calamity? And all this Job did not sin with his lips. Now I stop here to just point something out. Some of our brethren would have us believe that Satan is basically free, running amok all over the world. Others would have us believe there's no such thing as Satan. Both of those are errors. Satan is in this world, but Satan is under the sovereignty of God. We are not, as Christians, dualists. It is not an equal battle between good and evil, and the outcome is in doubt. It is that there is one sovereign God over all things, and one of his creatures is loose in rebellion, but not so loose in rebellion that the Lord cannot hinder, nor stop, nor control him. That's why James will say, submit yourselves therefore to God. And the next part, resist the devil and he will what? Flee from you. My friend, him fleeing from you is not that you're that impressive. Submit yourselves to God. Resist, he will flee. Second consideration. God's sovereignty over the world he created. Now, this psalm we started with, 115th, an Egyptian Hallel, had a connection as they sang this, thinking about what it is that God had done for them in releasing them. It was sung as hope. It was sung as reminiscence as they saw God destroy the gods of Egypt, and they left. The Lord already had said, I'm exalting myself over Pharaoh, Exodus 9, 16, for this purpose I raised you up to show you my power, so my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. And you notice in this psalm, he, the, the people sing this. Verse 2, why should the nation say, where is their God? The Egyptians, no doubt, wondered about Israelites' God. Where had he been? Why were they in slavery? Does he not have any real power? Are our gods not mightier than this God of these weak Hebrew slaves? And the answer is, our God is in the heavens. He does whatever 
he is pleased to do. My friends, no, never lose sight of this. God is not obligated to act in the timing nor the way that you and I demand. He's done whatever he pleased. Psalm 135, 6, whatever the Lord pleases, he does. In heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the deeps. Well, that's just big things, preacher. It's not little things. God isn't a God over the little things. Proverbs 16, 33, the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. I tell you what, folks, people believe that Vegas would have all sorts of problems. Oh, when Nebuchadnezzar is restored, Daniel chapter 4, after his arrogance, and the Lord humbles him, humbles him so much that he turns into mentally a, a bovine. He walks on all fours, he grazes in the field. Verse 34, Daniel 4, at the end of those days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. Can I let you see some? There's a connection here. You lift your eyes, your reasoning tends to return. <laughs> and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. He does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? Now, I know you, well, people say that all the time. What do you think you're doing, Lord? What are you up to? You've got to understand that has no bearing. The Lord is not going, oh, no, I've offended them. They don't like what I've done. I shall hang my head in shame and beg forgiveness. No. Tozer put it this way, to whom would God go for permission who is higher than the highest? Who is mightier than the Almighty? Whose position antedates that of the eternal? At whose throne would God kneel? Where is the greater one to whom he must appeal? Answer, no one. Now, why would I talk about God being sovereign over Satan and sovereign over this world? How, preacher, is there practicality to this? Yes, there is. Third thing, God's sovereign in our sufferings. Now, friend, let me explain something to you. If you read the Bible with any discernment at all, you pick up that God does things that include you and I suffering. How? Do we handle that? Now, we have folks out there who will tell us, well, now, if you'll just quit confessing all that negative stuff, bad things won't happen. Please don't listen to idiots. I'm sorry, was that too harsh? They are fools. Christianity is not magic. Speaking words in certain orders or in certain ways is not how this thing functions. Think back to the Job account. 
What was Job's response? The Lord gives, and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now, folks, I say that. Please hear my heart. I don't speak of this theoretically. If you live this life any length of time at all, Christian, you're going to be bereft. You're going to be grieved. You're going to be hurt. But God is sovereign, even in our pain. And you and I are called to believe even when we cannot understand. And a further aside, understanding would not change your pain. I'm going to say this just as bluntly as I can because I walk this. Knowing why God did or allowed something would not change the pain you feel. We live in a fallen world and grief and sorrow go with it. But in that grieving world, to know Isaiah 45, 7, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. So you see, my friend, you say, well, preacher, that's a tough verse. Well, let me give you a nicer one. But the nicer one depends on the darker one to you. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. But you see, my friend, Romans 8, 28 cannot be true unless our God is sovereign. I may not understand all that is done. I may not grasp everything that the God does. In fact, I don't. But I must not think that I take one piece of the puzzle, hold it up, and say, Lord, till you tell me where this fits, I won't play anymore. Put it down. In faith, believe a day is coming when the sufferings of this present time shall not be worth comparing with the glory that shall yet be revealed. Romans 8.28 is meaningless without the absolute sovereignty of God. Fourth, and here's the doctrine that gets so many bothered. This is where people tend to balk. God is not only sovereign over Satan and over this whole created order and sovereign over our sufferings. God is sovereign in the matter of salvation. Words like predestination and election are not slips. The Holy Spirit didn't inspire Paul or Peter or the other authors to write and then get distracted for a moment and they slipped in the word predestination. The Holy Spirit's going, oh no! Stop! Don't! Erase! The word predestination in theological circles is usually a broader term 
than it is biblically. In Scripture, predestination is exclusively about God saving His people. Election simply means choice. We get our English word election from the Greek word uh, eklektos. What are we saying? Now, I know some of us say, well, if you believe in predestination, you don't believe that we have any freedom. Wrong. We do have freedom. We have freedom according to our abilities and freedom according to our desires. Now, somebody said, well, do you believe in free will? Yes. But God is freer than you. And your freedom is limited by your abilities. I've had people, well, if you believe that, you don't believe John 3, 16. Oh, no. The stake driven through the heart of my theological schema. I've erased John 3, 16. Why did it out? Because, you know, it doesn't fit. Of course not. What madness. Does God love the world? In some sense, yes. But also think about John 3.16 spoken to a bunch of brand new Jewish converts who all their life believed the only people God loved were Jews. God so loved the world. But you see that same gospel of John in the 6th chapter and the Lord Jesus will say, all the Father gives me, verse 37, will, will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I'll never cast out. And in that same sixth chapter of John, in the 44th verse, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. Enough? Hmm. How about Paul's testimony, Galatians, the first chapter? But when he who had set me apart before I was born and called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. This is Galatians chapter 1, verse 15 and following. I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Paul never talked about, you know, when I finally decided to yield to Jesus, I decided, they, they sang that wonderful little chorus, I have decided to follow Jesus. That's what, right? And don't you find that in Acts chapter 9 at Saul's conversion? The Lord Jesus said, now while the angelic choir sings just as I am, Saul if you'll follow me, if you'll believe in me, you, you raise your hand or whatever. I read that text and Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus whom you persecute. Go on into Damascus. I'll get back to you. Okay, that's paraphrased, but that's the essence of what was said. Mm. I know some. Well, if, if God's sovereign in salvation, how is that fair? My friend, 
The last thing you need is fair. The last thing you need is fair. If God's going to be absolutely just and not provide other than, you know, some little gap here or there, the essence of what I'm saying is this, you need God to act and you need him to act graciously. Now we'll come to this text and this is where we will finish for the most part today. Romans 9. Romans 9. Now this is going to catch you all, you biblical scholars. Pay attention here. Comes right after Romans 8. You with me? How does Romans 8 end? What shall separate us from the love of God? And then he goes down this list. No, I'm convinced that none of these things, and then he gives his whole list, none of these things can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And he knows the Jews in the audience, even the Jewish Christians are saying, but what about us? God made all these promises, and look how this thing has turned out. And so in Romans 9, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and ceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed, cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. The Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. And then he takes up the objection, verse 6, but it's not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they're his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means it's not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but children of the promise who are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said about this time next year, I'll return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born, had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the elder will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now, quickly, let me explain the flow of the argument. He's saying, just because you're one of Abraham's descendants doesn't make you one of the people of God. And he knew that they would not argue with that because they didn't see the descendants of Ishmael as children of God. It's only the descendants of Isaac that are the children of God. And then Paul takes that and says, well, don't you see? That means that just because you came of his lineage doesn't mean you're real. And they say, ah, now, two different women. Haven't made your case, Paul. How about Rebecca and the twins? What's she told? Elder will serve the younger. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Now he knows how people are going to respond to that. And here's the first response, verse 14. 
What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? That's not fair. By no means. For he says to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy. I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this purpose I raised you up that I might show my power in you and my name might be proclaimed in all the earth so that he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. Now, some of you go, whoa, 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 wait, wait. God hardens? What well, read this account of Pharaoh and here's what you read. You read three different ways that Pharaoh's heart was hardened. It will say, Pharaoh hardens his own heart. Right? It will say, the Lord hardens Pharaoh's heart. And then there are times it will say Pharaoh's heart was hardened without attributing the hardening to anybody. So what's true? Does God harden Pharaoh's heart or does Pharaoh harden Pharaoh's heart? Or is it just a mystery what is going on? No, my friend, what the Scripture is showing us is this. If God doesn't keep you from doing it, you will harden your heart against Him. He doesn't have to take action for that hardening to take place. All He has to do is turn you loose. Pharaoh was not an innocent bystander in the purpose of God. He was sinful. Now, I know some of you say, well, okay, you've kind of answered the fairness question. It's all about mercy. But how about the next question in verse 19? Why does he still find fault? Who can resist his will? What's the answer? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God. For what is molded, say to its molder, why have you made me like this? My friends, I can give a defense of the sovereignty of God. I can explain it. I can take more time. I can expand on this. There's lots of things to do. But let me just point out one key reality here that I think every believer has to come to this at some point and stop and bow your head on your knee. He's God. You're not. He reigns. He has purpose. And I still recall a dear Christian girl who heard this for the first time, and her response was, Well, that's the case, I'm not going to have kids. And I remember the reaction. Somebody started laughing and said, oh, good, you're going to fool God. You see, my friend, I'm not to live with the sovereignty of God as a fearful thing, but rather as a joyful thing, a comforting thing. I may not be able to explain and likely will not what goes on, but I can trust in him. We're commanded, you know, to take the gospel into the whole world. We're expected to share the good news. We're expected to be reminded of what Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 3. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believe, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Paul says, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. 
So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. It goes on to say, you are God's field, God's building. Now, Christian, this is probably as blunt and straightforwardly as I have put this doctrine before you at any time in 29 years. But coddling you is not going to help you. And not facing this squarely will do you no good. Yeah, so we say, I'm overwhelmed. Yeah, me too. I'm glad I'm not alone. There's a point here where you and I must simply bow our head and our heart and say, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Whether it's in the midst of suffering, it's an intellectual struggle, whether it's running contrary to everything that I thought to be true and now I'm having to rethink everything I thought I believed. There's a place here, my friend, for you and I in our devotion to our God to say, Lord, help. Help me. Now you had to know I wasn't going to get done with this without Spurgeon, right? And, and <laughs> now folks, I want you to catch this. This is from a sermon of his from the 4th of May, 1856, at the ripe old age of 21. Okay. There is no attribute of God more comforting to his children than the doctrine of a divine sovereignty. Under the most adverse circumstances and the most severe troubles, they believe that sovereignty has ordained their afflictions, that sovereignty overrules them, and that sovereignty will sanctify them all. There is nothing for which the children of God ought more earnestly to contend than the dominion of their master over all creation, the kingship of God over all the works of his own hands, the throne of God and his right to sit upon that throne. On the other hand, there's no doctrine more hated by worldlings, no truth of which they've made such a football as the great, stupendous, but yet most certain doctrine of the sovereignty of the infinite Jehovah. Men will allow God to be everywhere except on his throne. They will allow him to be his work, in his workshop to fashion worlds and make stars. They'll allow him to be in his uh, almondry to dispense alms and bestow his bounties. They'll allow him to sustain the earth and bear up the pillars thereof or light the lamps of heaven or rule the waves of the ever-moving ocean. But when God ascends his throne, his creatures then gnash their teeth. And when we proclaim an enthroned God, and his right to do as he wills with his own, to dispose of his creatures as he thinks well, without consulting them in the matter, then it is that we have hissed and execrated, and then it is that men turn a deaf ear to us, for God on his throne is not the God they love. They love him anywhere better than they do when he sits with his scepter in his hand and his crown upon his head. But it is God upon the throne that we love to preach. It is God upon his throne whom we trust. It is God upon his throne of whom we have been singing this morning. It is God upon his throne of whom we shall speak in this discourse. 
I shall dwell only, however, upon one portion of God's sovereignty, and that is God's sovereignty in the distribution of his gifts. In this respect, I believe he has the right to do as he wills with his own. He exercises that right. Now let me conclude this this way. Do you believe in the love of God? Do you believe God sets his love on you? Isn't it a glorious thing to know that that love is omnipotent love? That love is powerful love. That love is saving love. Do you believe that he loves you even in the midst of your suffering? Do you believe he's doing what is for your good and his glory even if you can't understand? My friend, that's what I would call you to today. Yes, bow your head, bow your knee, bow your heart. But bow to not some robot, but to the everlasting Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who set his love on you and called you to salvation. Bow your knee to him who, when you pray to him, can actually do something. So when you pray for your loved ones who are not Christians, you pray for them who are not yet the Lord's, and you wonder, your children, your grandchildren, family members, friends, pray to a God who can act. Pray to a God who will act. Pray to the only sovereign, King of kings, Lord of lords. Let's pray. Our Father, may this your word, may it go down deep into us. May we be changed by it. May we rest knowing that Christ is our only hope and that he has set his love on us and died for us. Father, save us from our arrogance, our vain thoughts of autonomy. Oh Lord, let us know that our acts, what we do, what we decide is significant, but that all that we do is under your hand. And Father, what comfort to know that even when we get in the wrong place, you're able to extricate us. You're able to guide us. That we truly can rest in you. Not unto us, O Lord. Not unto us, but unto your name. Be the glory.